Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... It nudges up against an expressway, a startling stack of sci-fi capsules with porthole windows. The queue embodies a number of virtues ostentatiously valued by the British in the breach, if not always the observance. It's both a reminder of Istanbul's grand past and an expression of the city's modern creativity. We take a trip around the globe to bring you some of our favourite episodes of the urbanist sister show, Tall Stories, all recorded this year, 2022. We return to Kyiv, a few months on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to see how the city is getting on with life while still at war. We look back on the strange transformation that London underwent after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and we say goodbye to the iconic capsule tower in Japan's capital too. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. So, we start our global tour today in Paris. Along the French capital's left bank sits an iconic bookstore that is not only a point of pilgrimage for visiting bookworms, but a place for aspiring writers to find both inspiration and accommodation too. Guiding us through its storage shelves back in May was Sally Howard. Few names loom larger in Paris's literary imagination than Shakespeare and company. In the bookish nooks of this left-bank store, its green and yellow awning unmissable at the corner of Rue de la Boucherie and Rue Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, literary careers have been forged, romances ignited, and wide-eyed tourists introduced something of la vie bohème. A decade ago, my husband wooed me in the piano room of this grotto-like English-language bookstore in Paris, where hardback biographies are stacked like the Manhattan skyline, and shop tabby cat Aggie is often to be found curled up in a warm spot behind the door. We'd buy novels, then, on the recommendation of one of the shop's enthusiastic young staff, then stroll along the Quai de Montebello, fancying ourselves as F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, who were habitués of Shakespeare and Company in the 1920s. Or we'd while away afternoons in the shop's first-floor library, where books are famously not for sale, and there are views through cracked windows of Notre Dame framed by cherry trees. This storied Parisian bookshop was founded in 1919 by modernist publisher Sylvia Beach, a move from Saint-Germain to its current Sennside location in 1951, under the management of shock-haired American eccentric George Whitman, who sought, he said at the time, to build a shop that was akin to a book that leads into a magical world in the imagination. William Burroughs researched the naked lunch in Shakespeare and Company's ancient medical tomes. Fellow beats Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso stripped naked for a 1958 poetry recital and unabashed feminist icon Anais Nin swigged Bordeaux from the bottle at the 1974 launch of her tell-all memoir. Since the 1950s, Shakespeare and Company has also played host to the aspiring young writers Whitman dubbed the Tumbleweeds. The Tumbleweeds are invited to sleep on makeshift beds erected on the store's bookshelves, to borrow freely from its library and pay their keep by manning the tills. 3,000 of them had passed through its creaking green-painted doors by 2020. 
George Whitman died in 2011 at the age of 98 and was widely mourned by the literary monde. His daughter Sylvia now runs Shakespeare & Company, which is going from strength to strength since an online campaign to save it during the pandemic. Back then, former tumbleweeds, including Jeanette Winterson, rallied round to raise funds, and the store reversed a long-held policy of not debasing itself with e-commerce. It now sells rare books online, and memorabilia such as Lissac Shopping, painted with Shakespeare & Company's logo, a line drawing of the bard. George Whitman was famously fond of likening himself to the lamplighters who illuminated the streets of the medieval Rive Gauche. I'm just a frère lampier, he'd tell his wide-eyed young tumbleweeds, drinking, as was his eccentric want, vin rouge from an empty tuna can. This, he said, is the modest role I play. A 70-year legacy, as well as millions of happy customers toting paperbacks as they stroll along the Seine, might beg to disagree. Sally Howard there, reporting from Paris. Heading now to Ukraine. Monocle's Olga Tokaryuk returned to the capital, Kyiv, in May to assess how day-to-day life was continuing after Russia's invasion of her country. After three months away, I returned to Kyiv to find it looking so familiar, but also so different, scarred by war. Me and my family left to western Ukraine a few days before the Russian invasion began. Last weekend, I briefly returned to take some things before going back to western Ukraine, which still feels safer to live with a child. Kyiv looked almost normal. There were a lot of people on the streets, including kids. According to local authorities, two-thirds of pre-war Kyiv residents are currently in the city. Many have been returning in recent days. And while there is much less traffic on normally busy streets, partly due to fuel shortages, the metro carriages are packed. Metro stations don't serve as bomb shelters anymore, but the underground hasn't resumed its regular operations yet. Trains run every 20 minutes instead of usual 3 to 5, and the metro closes early, two hours before night curfew. While I was waiting for a train, an elderly lady was singing a false song, Oi Oguzi Cervona Kalina, a symbol of Ukraine's resistance, repeating the refrain, We will make Ukraine smile again, over and over. Many businesses in Kyiv have reopened, but not all of them. I checked some popular cafes and restaurants, and 8 out of 10 were open. Queues at the entry to Crimean Tatar restaurant Musafir and to a kiosk with Kyiv's famous fast food, a sausage in fried dough, known as Brepichka, looked clearly like signs of normality. As were blooming chestnut trees on the central Khrushchev Street, Kyiv's landmark. I was also happy to see that my favorite bookshop has reopened. I rushed into it to purchase some books and support their struggling business financially. There are obviously a lot of armed people in military uniforms in the city too. Documents are checked at the entrance to the main train station and at the platform exits in an attempt to identify Russian sabotage groups. But it's the sounds that betray that normal life has not yet returned to Kyiv. From distant explosions caused by the mining in Kyiv's suburbs to air raid sirens, 
which still go off several times per day. One of them wailed while I was in St. Michael's Cathedral, interrupting my prayer. The sound was coming from all sides, from my smartphone and those of people around who also installed an app warning of air raid alerts. I decided to stay in the church. It must have been the safest place in Kyiv, I thought. Throughout history, St. Michael's always gave shelter to residents when enemy troops besieged the city. So I sat there, inhaling the candle smell, looking at the frescoes of Virgin Mary on the 12th century walls, tears streaming down my face in grief for Ukrainian lives, lost and upended by Russian invasion. Strolling central Kyiv streets, I looked for differences from the pre-war city. Here, monuments to Kyiv's medieval rulers, protected from airstrikes by bags of sand and wooden walls. Here, huge banners on St. Sophia Square in yellow and blue colors, praising Ukrainians' bravery and calling to save the city of Mariupol. Here, anti-tank hedgehogs and Ukrainian flags stuck into a grass field in honor of false soldiers at Maidan, Kyiv's central square. One of the most striking things were street banners, not replaced since February 24, the day Russian invasion began. They were still advertising concerts and balls that never happened. It felt as if the time had stopped, frozen. I saw a banner of the movie I last saw in the cinema in peaceful Kyiv, Stop Zemlya, by Ukrainian director Katerina Hornostai, a tender story about teenage love. The banner was partially destroyed by Russian missile strikes aimed at a nearby industrial facility, which damaged residential buildings too. The latest strike killed my colleague, a journalist, Vira Hirich. The shattered banner looked like a perfect epitome of innocent life so abruptly lost. No, life in Ukraine's capital is not like it used to be before the war. Kyiv residents may return, businesses may reopen, but the war scars are there to stay. Monocle's Olga Tokariuk there in Kyiv. Next, we head to Turkey to visit an historic building in Istanbul dubbed the Haunted House. Ghosts or not, though, the building does indeed shapeshift, morphing from an office space during the week to an art gallery on weekends. Reporting back in January was Emily Wither. Sitting elegantly on the European banks of the Bosphorus, the natural strait that runs through Istanbul, is Perili Koshk, in English, the Haunted Mansion. We'll get to how it got its name later. Originally known as the Yusuf Zia Pasha Mansion, it's a stunning example of Istanbul's rich architectural heritage. The castle-like red brick building, complete with stained glass windows and a turret, sits on one of the narrowest points of the Bosphorus, offering a panoramic view from the rooftop. It's worth visiting just for the photo opportunities alone. From the nine-storey building, you can see both the Black Sea and the Marmara Sea and catch a glimpse of the hillside homes dotting the Asian side of the city. Up on the roof, on one side, you can marvel at modern design with a unique view of the Fatih Sultan Mehmet Bridge, also known as the Second Bosphorus Bridge, a giant slab of concrete connecting Europe with Asia. 
On the other side, admire the crumbling 15th century medieval fortress, Rumeli Hisseri, commissioned for an Ottoman siege of what was then known as Constantinople. The building is now the headquarters of Turkish industrial group Borisan Holding, as well as hosting its museum for contemporary art. On the weekends, after the office workers have left with tidy desks, you can visit the ever-changing exhibition lineup with new media at its core as artists experiment with light, sound and video. Its founders say they hope to increase interest in contemporary art in Turkey. But perhaps just as enjoyable is the chance to snoop through the offices as you make your way through the sprawling space to the rooftop. On every floor, each neat meeting room and generous workspace is adorned with artwork from the Borisan Contemporary Art Collection. Borisan claimed to be the first in the world pioneering this unique office museum concept. If I could describe my dream office, this would be it. It's a calming, creative space featuring interesting design, striking artwork, beautifully crafted furniture, and of course, those views. The luminescent waters of the Bosphorus bursting through big, bright windows. If you worked here, trust me, you wouldn't want to work from home. Construction for the mansion began in 1910 under Yusuf Zia Pasha, the Ottoman ambassador to the United States, but stopped when the Ottoman Empire joined the First World War and construction workers were forced to trade in their tools for weapons. In 1995, a restoration process began led by Turkish architect Hakan Kuran, who took great care to restore the stone and brick facade, staying true to the original design, even importing the bricks from England. There are several tales as to why the house is haunted. After construction abruptly halted during the war, its second and third floors remained empty for decades, prompting the locals to wander as the wind whistled through the empty space. Rumour has it, the workers who were building the mansion claimed to have seen the late wife of the Ottoman Pasha and heard the faint tinkling sounds of a piano. Many of the city's old mansions are being torn down, replaced with modern villas, high-rise apartments or soulless shopping malls. This century-old manor on the banks of the Bosphorus is both a reminder of Istanbul's grand past and an expression of the city's modern creativity. Emily Wither there, reporting from Istanbul. Now we're going to go to Japan to say goodbye to an icon of Tokyo's built environment. The tower has now been disassembled, but its story exemplifies Tokyo's battle with safeguarding its fading architectural history. Back in February, Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson, brought us this story. It looks a little dilapidated today, but Nakagin Capsule Tower is one of the most important modern buildings in Japan. Sitting on the fringes of glitzy Ginza, it nudges up against an expressway, a startling stack of sci-fi capsules with porthole windows. It was designed by Kisho Kurokawa and opened in 1972, a shining symbol of metabolism, a Japanese architecture movement that sought to answer questions about how Japan's booming post-war cities should accommodate their burgeoning populations. 
Kurokawa's solution was a tower made of prefabricated capsules, each one a self-contained apartment that could be bolted on or taken away as needed. Japan is a different country today, and metabolism a distant memory. But the tower still stands, as neglected by its owners as it is loved by its admirers. Its presence taken for granted, Nakagin is as much a part of Tokyo's cityscape as Tokyo Tower or the giant wooden gate of Meiji Shrine. Go to Legoland and there it is, rendered in chunky plastic bricks. And yet this special building is to be demolished this year. Some fans tried to stop the inevitable by buying up empty capsules, but the owners were determined and the building was sold. The tower had been allowed to sink into a state of disrepair over recent years, even though a number of its 140 capsules were still occupied. Today, as the hoardings go up and a forlorn Save Nakagin banner hangs in a window, there's plenty of nostalgia, but Nakagin will soon be gone. And here's the problem. What is Tokyo doing to preserve its modern architectural legacy? Buildings from the 1950s, 60s and 70s are routinely deemed too unremarkable to deserve protection, with the result that Tokyo is losing an important part of its post-war legacy. With such illustrious names as Yoshio Taniguchi, Kenzo Tange and Kunio Maikawa, this was a special generation of architects who wholeheartedly embraced the new while playing with references to a much older Japan. Look at Tokyo's National Theatre, a beautiful slice of modernism facing the Imperial Palace. Designed by Hiroyuki Iwamoto and built in 1966, its majestic, some might say austere facade, was inspired by the same horizontal log-style architecture that was used in the 1,200-year-old Shosoin treasure house at Todaiji Temple in Nara. At night, it is elegantly lit with a long line of lanterns, even the front garden is of interest, planted with ten types of cherry trees. Seeing kabuki or bunraku puppetry there is a special experience. The Japan Arts Council, supposed guardians of Japanese culture, has announced that the theatre is to be replaced with a new high-rise, with a theatre below, hotel on top and new restaurant facilities. The much-loved old National Stadium, built in 1958 with room for nearly 50,000, was replaced with a lavish new stadium to meet the larger capacity required to host the Olympics, which was somewhat ironic as it turned out, since the Tokyo 2020 Games ended up being spectator-free, and the future of the stadium is uncertain, given the hefty costs of maintaining such a huge facility. The unusually vocal campaign to renovate rather than demolish the old stadium came to nothing. The list of other notable modern buildings that will be removed continues. Marinucci's first high-rise, the Tokyo Marie Nichido Insurance Building, will soon come down. Built in 1974 and designed by Kunio Mayakawa, one of Japan's great modern architects, it was controversially tall in its day the first building of any height to overlook the Imperial Palace across the moat. Today, the reddish brick facade is dwarfed by tall glass towers. It will be demolished next year to be replaced by a new tower by 2028. Two other buildings, the Yurakacho building from 1966 and the Shin Yurakacho from 1969, both beneficiaries of a change in the law in 1963 that allowed sizable tower blocks to be built for the first time, are coming down part of a great sweep of redevelopment that has transformed the area around Tokyo Station. What is lost is not simply the architecture, it's the ecosystem of Kisaten coffee shops, the old-school barbers, 
the sense of a Tokyo that will soon disappear from view. The interval dinner at the National Theatre is currently served by jacketed waiters in 20 minutes flat in a delightfully dated dining room. That experience will be lost along with the building. The Palace, the Capital Tokyo and the Okura, all landmark Tokyo hotels of the 60s, have been replaced with new buildings, more suited to the demands of the modern traveller. To the Okura's credit, the team did everything possible to recreate the famous old lobby with painstaking craftsmanship. That project is unique, and it could be argued that the rebuild revived some techniques that might have disappeared. The era has few supporters. Even the great Nakagin, which any city should be proud to have, is going with little fanfare. Most shrug with acceptance and say that at least a capsule or two will be saved to be shown in museums, which surely misses the point entirely. Tokyo has a poor history of preservation. Of course, external events have played their part too, but might we make a plea for the city to take better care of its post-war buildings? Monocle's Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. We head the long way round the world now to Mexico City to observe a system of floating farms, a centuries-old agricultural technique which helps to feed the citizens in the region and that is seeing a renewed enthusiasm from chefs and customers too. Our guide through the canals back in June was Mary Holland. It's hard to believe you're still in Mexico City when you arrive at Xochimilco, a neighbourhood 15 or so miles south of the bustling historic district downtown. In the early mornings before the sun has risen, mist hangs over the calm waterways and birds flutter between the willow trees. The colourful gondola-like boats which shuttle people along the canals gently knock against the banks. It's not always this calm. By midday on weekends, Xochimilco springs to life when locals and tourists descend upon the boats in search of a festive experience, where food vendors and mariachi bands float down the waterways. The area has become known for these jubilant boat experiences, which often clog the canals on sunny days. But Xochimilco has a history that goes a lot deeper than that. The Chinampas, or floating gardens, which expand across some 7,500 hectares, were first used by the Aztecs in Mesoamerican agriculture. Crops were planted on shallow lake beds, which were built on wetlands or swamps, essentially creating artificial islands. To create these, mud from the bottom of the canal and lake vegetation was stacked high, creating a fertile area for crops to grow. The result is an incredibly productive form of agriculture, where up to seven harvests can be done per year. To this day, Xochimilco is home to the most famous chinampas that still exist. Once the city's main food source, though, Urbanisation has meant there are fewer farms than ever before, and the ones that do exist are at serious risk. Not only do they face flooding, but soil contamination and water pollution. Worse still, they're in a state of abandonment and are in danger of disappearing. Arcatira is an initiative hoping to change that. By promoting agriculture and fair trade, as well as encouraging consumers to buy products which grow free from pesticides and fungicides, Arcatira is made up of people who are passionate about farming and hope to preserve the Chinampas by working with a network of farmers dedicated to regenerative farming practices. Many of the city's best chefs source produce harvested by the network of Arcatira's farmers, and Mexico City residents can have boxes delivered to their homes. 
On weekends, Akatira sometimes hosts workshops and meals where locals and tourists can book to visit the Chinampa, learn about the traditional farming techniques and enjoy a farm-fresh meal, sometimes prepared by one of the country's star chefs. One crisp Saturday morning, I visit the Akatira Chinampa. I arrive at the dock before sunrise, where around 40 other people, mostly locals, are sipping mugs of coffee infused with cinnamon and chocolate, soaking up some caffeine while also warming their hands. We climb onto the boats and begin to drift down the canals along the glassy water. As light begins to break, the surroundings become clear, the plants, the trees. We see wildlife, in the distance, what looks like a heron. I feel a million miles away from the frenzied streets of Mexico City. We arrive at the Chinampa to find a rambling garden with verdant plants, rows of lettuce and spinach, as well as seedlings which have just been planted, and the sun is casting a warm glow. It's incredible to think these islands were used by the Aztecs thousands of years ago. We take a brief tour and learn about the different products. Then breakfast is served at long tables. People gather around, grab a seat wherever they can. The setup is casual and unfussy, where people who may not know each other sit side by side, hopefully share a conversation. From an open kitchen where pots are heated on a fire, plates of gorditas, thick tortillas made from purple corn, and a bright salad made up of lettuce and beetroot grown a few meters away are served. The meal is simple, fresh, delicious. At the other table, I see Lucho Martinez, one of Mexico City's rising chefs and founder of M Restaurant. He's here with his family. It's not uncommon to find some of the best chefs having a meal or joining a workshop. Sometimes they even cook here, in a hope to create more awareness about the importance of this farming system. For protecting these chinampas isn't only about safeguarding a thriving ecosystem and the plants and animals within it, all on the brink of irrefutable damage. It's also about empowering farmers and preserving a system that's deeply linked to the country's heritage. Monocle's Mary Holland there, reporting from Mexico City. And we're going to finish back at base here in London to remember one of the biggest moments of the year, the death of the United Kingdom's Queen Elizabeth II. The subsequent ceremonies saw the most British of tributes pop up in the capital, an enormous queue that round its way through the streets of London while the late monarch lay in state. In line, back in September, for this tall story, was Monocle's Andrew Muller. All nations burnish an idealised version of a national character. It's never entirely accurate, but it's never entirely inaccurate, at least in as much that it is telling which qualities a given people boasts of having, even if they actually don't have them. The British think of themselves, certainly enjoy describing themselves, as a nation of great cures. We love a queue, the British titter to themselves, almost as if the concept of waiting in line for one's turn was a concept unheard of elsewhere. It's not just that, though. The queue embodies a number of virtues ostentatiously valued by the British in the breach, if not always the observance. Patience, stoicism, fair play. So it seems kind of fitting that one expression of mourning of Queen Elizabeth II was a queue, specifically the queue to witness the lying in state of the late monarch in Westminster Hall. 
It was a queue of unarguably impressive proportions. The impressiveness of it at any given moment could be gleaned from the helpful live online queue tracker furnished by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Much of the route amounted to an extremely slow-moving tour of the south bank of the River Thames, from Southwark Park under Tower Bridge and the less picturesque bridges subsequent to that, past the Tate Modern and the brutalist Leviathan of the South Bank Centre, before crossing the river on Lambeth Bridge and snaking into Westminster Hall. Beyond much doubt, one of the most beautiful indoor spaces in Europe, hovered over by wooden hammer beams installed on the instruction of Richard II, circa the late 14th century. It is just as well the views were so splendid. Putative queueurs were cautioned to prepare for waits north of 10 hours, and many waited much longer than that. The queue was anticipated, as one would certainly hope in Britain of all places. More than a thousand volunteers kept order. There were regular toilet stations and medical staff hovering. Hundreds of people who may have overestimated their queuing capacity were attended to by ambulance crews. Provisions were made for people simply physically unable to queue for that long. As is invariably the case where royalty is concerned, there were protocols. Quite a lot could not be brought into Westminster Hall. Flasks, camping equipment, flowers, sharp items, flags and more besides had to be checked at a bag drop facility just past Westminster Bridge. There were airport-style security checks. Clothes bearing political or offensive slogans could not be worn. Phones had to be silenced and photography was forbidden. No animals were allowed other than assistance dogs. There were reports of attempts to flout this one. It was noteworthy how quickly coverage and discussion of the queue settled on the name The Queue, capital T, capital Q. A few chortling wags floated QE2, or the Elizabeth Line, but neither quite did justice to the heft, determination and presence of this strange and solemn temporary addition to London streetscape. It was the queue. And as the queue grew, it became an attraction in itself. People spoke, in all seriousness, of going to see the queue. Not the complete experience, perhaps, but at least there wasn't a queue for it. Monocle's Andrew Muller there with that tall story. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get your weekly episodes of Tall Stories. There's a new episode out every Monday. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Kenna Beck with Tall Tales. Thank you for listening, city lovers. I've been under rocks, been under stones to find. 